This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Light Matter is a digital product studio that helps some of the world's fastest growing startups and enterprise companies design and develop software applications. They build killer web and mobile apps, APIs, and help with some of the toughest legacy transformations. Check them out at lightmatter.com forward slash saster. Up today, Keith Raboy, general partner at Founders Fund, and Jason Lemkin, CEO and founder of Saster, on unicorns and decacorns in 2020. What's changed and what hasn't? Let's step back, because I know this is something everyone's thinking about, all of the world, everyone on Twitter. But how do you, tell me what you're thinking about, how do I get my arms around this slide, right? On the left, we, we go into February, and this is the best of times, isn't it? 10, 11 year, I mean, it's better than we ever thought right? There was kind of this joke on Twitter the other day, someone was pointing out how on your LinkedIn, you said PayPal had exited at a billion and now it's worth 40 billion or 50 billion. So we've been on a long, a long run, but even before you update your LinkedIn and then bam, look at this, the BVP cloud index, we plummeted in, in March. And then as we were talking about before, if you just put all your money just into, into square on March 20th, you would have doubled your money, right? Let alone the data dogs and the, and the Shopify's and the Zooms. And yet, as you've talked about a lot, look, look at what's happening in California. I mean, it's devastating. So how, as an investor um, and as someone looking forward, how, how do we weigh these two, the, the two sides of this, the best and the worst of times? There's a couple of potential theoretical answers that would reconcile these two worlds. One is, you know, maybe the stock markets are long-term investors and all the critiques that you know, public market investors are short-term thinkers are just false. Like, and you can make a strong empirical argument right now that all of the major indices in the world are basically taking a long-term perspective on the value of these companies, looking at the you know, effectively the discounted cash flow projections and saying, hey, there's this virus blip that'll be between one and four quarters long, but nothing about a 20-year horizon has gotten worse. And if anything, you know, maybe things are better over 20 years. And, you know, so all the people who are whining and jumping up and down about, you know, the evils of short-termism in public markets, which I never really believed in anyway, you know, maybe are just like factually wrong. Um, that's one thesis. Second way to go is, you know, typically when you do your discounted cash flow, you know, for those of you who went to business school or something, you're basically applying it. The key variable is actually your discount rate. And with the interest rates being effective interest rates being so low, your discount rate is basically negligible. The annual discount rate you apply. So, you know, in some ways, if you just held everything constant and change your discount rate and reduce it by a meaningful amount, you're going to get exactly the chart on your left. And that, that actually would work just empirically also. So I don't think it's that hard to reconcile these things. It's a little harder to reconcile is what's going on in venture. We'll talk about that separately, which is I actually do think that most private market investors are somewhere between spooked and reorienting their approach and valuations. Um, and that's a little bit disconnected from the public markets at the moment. And at some point, those things need to uh, you know, be in harmony, uh, at least in partial harmony. So let, let's come back to that in a second. But just to understand these two. So just to just unpack a little bit what you're saying. So SMBs at least many SMBs are incredibly impacted, right? I mean, yeah. levels of, of small businesses shut down, many of which 
the Shopify's and the squares it would attempt to power, right? Some of them are doing better, don't get me wrong, but the level of the level of businesses in the tenderloin, the level of businesses in app on this, I mean, it, it's going to be devastating, right? And it'll be years, but many will never reopen. Does it not matter for the chart on the left? The unemployment, I mean, just getting away from the human impact, does it not impact at the end? Does it not all bubble up to even the best cloud stocks? It's unclear which uh, stocks it bubbles up to. I mean, many companies you know, are not really serving the target market of the SMBs that are most affected. Um, yes. You know, think like traditional retail, traditional coffee shops, comfort food, you know, gyms, fitness, et cetera. There are some companies, you know, that are technology companies that, ha- that do work with them and do target them. But that's not the meat and potatoes of most uh, companies. The squares, absolutely, you know, Yelp to some extent, absolutely. But that's more the exception than the rule um, of the go to market for many companies. So you could still reconcile those if you had to. And then typically in a recession or depression, whether we're in a depression or not, open question, but the consumer demand falls apart pretty quickly. And because the, the driver, the impetus for this uh, economic turmoil wasn't really a lack of consumer confidence uh, or lack of consumer resources, it's not clear that consumers don't have the money to spend. Um, so insofar as you're talking about consumer or pseudo-consumer stocks, people have a lot of disposable income at the moment partially because they're not spending it on things they normally would. So typically, a normal American goes out to eat a certain number of times a week. That's expensive. They may take a certain number of Ubers. That's expensive. They may go see a movie or two or show or play. They're not doing any of those things. So they're actually effectively saving money. So they have the ability to spend it in other places, whether they spend it now or save it and then spend it once the economy opens again. So I think that that will help uh, certainly prop up um, consumer-based stocks and then on the other hand, the government, or on top of that, the government's actually subsidizing a lot of people who are suffering. And so they don't well, feel the sure. short acute pain. And so they're not changing their consumption patterns as dramatically as if they were, you know, I was watching a movie the other night about like the Great Depression. That was a true 25, 30% unemployment or 20, 20, 25% unemployment where there was no consumer spending. And so obviously the people that need consumers to spend money for their revenue and then their contribution margin, you know, just had no shot of selling things. Like you look at like Model T sales or something. Right now, if you look in, on the other side, like look at US, uh, an area I know a fair amount about, look at US real estate, housing sales are actually somehow, this defies like logic, but is true. Last month, housing sales in the US are actually ahead of last year. Like literally ahead, not <laughs> that makes no sense in many ways. It's like 60 yes. dips ahead of last year. So um, there is you know, another tale two cities is most of the people that were most affected by the March and April shutdowns were not the people that buy and sell houses. There are people who typically are 1099 workers with you know lower FICA scores or lower total income. And so it didn't affect the U.S. real estate market, except for like two to three weeks where like everything was shut down and just couldn't like transact. But right now, I mean, Redfin has published several you know, studies publicly about how they're ahead of last year. Um, Zillow, I saw this morning, is trading at, at least, probably a 52-week high. So, you know, people are buying and selling houses. That sort of explain, you know, suggests that there is this weird uh, combination of something thriving and something failing. Um, I think the music industry, for example, at the extreme other end, is catastrophically affected. Like the idea that people are going to go see live shows in dense environments with poor sanitation 
in, uh, or they're gonna, you know, like I just think that that whole industry doesn't know what to do with itself at the moment, and it's gonna take years to sort out. So since you're maybe spending more time looking at some of the consumer data than many of us are, it sounds like there is some hints of optimism in what you're saying and that, I, that maybe you think, and we won't hold you to this, right? If in July you change your mind, it's, we're, all, we're all learning, right? But it sounds like you feel like there'll be a decent V. Like we will bounce, the $10 trillion being deployed to prop up the economy and pent up consumer demand may create a weird V, but it may create a V that's reflective of the chart on the left for consumers. No, I think it's going to be more inconsistent, I think, by segment. So there'll be some Vs yeah. and then there'll be some, like, complete flatlining. I think it's more overall, more like 2000 to 2003 in Silicon Valley. But there'll be some industries and some verticals that either aren't affected as much or snap back very quickly. And then there's going to be others that take years. There's a stat I saw um, after 9-11. Just before 9-11 occurred, um, we'd hit a U.S. peak domestic travel record. It took three years until May 2004 to get back to the level. Um, so I think most in, many industries will be like that, where it takes two or three years to get back to the same level. I think some love, some businesses never get back to the same level. Like I think international travel is almost permanently affected, permanently meaning measured in three to ten year doses. Where the idea that you can just travel almost anywhere in the globe by you know on a whim is not going to happen. Countries are going to take their borders, and, you know, very seriously, and they're going to. There's going to be different rules and different processes and different tests and different uh, paperwork you need um, to travel. And every time you add friction of getting paperwork, tests, etc., less people are going to travel. So the idea of like a weekend trip, you know, from New York, people live in New York, a weekend trip to London probably doesn't happen for a very long time. And so those industries and the, the associated industries, hospitality, etc. I, I think are in for a very long non-V-shaped recovery. Whereas some industries I can see snapping back, maybe retail, long tail retail, definitely. I already see this. I'm a multiple time investor in a company called Fair that basically provides data and services to SMBs um, all across the US and gives them the tools to compete with Amazon. And the company was doing phenomenally well and our customers were doing phenomenally well before March hit. We clearly saw the impact the first three weeks. You know, it's dramatic. Like nobody could go shop in, in Main Street America. But in the last three to four weeks, there's been a sustained week to week improvement. So I suspect in store, you know, in, in store, it's in, in store. store, in store. Well, there's some substitution. So that's that's a fair caveat. Some of these businesses, maybe even many of these businesses, have started investing more and more in selling online to their pre-existing in-store customers. So they, they've been actually quite clever and scrappy and figured out how to offset and decline in revenue. But the net effect is now in May likely to be more like a 10 to 20% net. Well, that's actually, that's even wrong. The company will grow like more than 2x year to year in May despite like all the lockdowns. So there is definitely a sustained improvement across the country, um, inconsistent. Um, you know, they serve the virtue of having 70,000 retailers or something like that is you actually literally have retailers everywhere. And so, you know, yes, in San Francisco, they're probably not, you know, selling that much. And in LA, probably not selling that much, but in, you know, somewhere in Nebraska, they're probably back to normal. Yeah, the different the, the the pieces that recover at which pace is interesting. I wrote 
I looked a little while ago. I wrote an early Saster post in 2013. After I sold EchoSign Adobe, I went back and, and got out. I, I rented a small office in downtown Palo Alto. And it was 2013, middle of 2013, when the last boards came down on a retail store. Um, the West Elm store, I don't know if you know where it is. It's like near yeah, Wahlburger. That was yeah. boarded up until 2013. That sounds crazy thinking about it, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, the log, the log is up. real. The log is very real. And then also there's industries where it's just hard to fathom how they how they deal from an economic standpoint with, you know, either consumer or government mandated density uh, caps, like think yeah. restaurants. Hard to imagine how the economics of those businesses, you know, work um, with half the tables. So let me just ask you on this one. I want to hit the next slide. Looking back, February, pick your date in February, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Where were we overall in venture one to 10, say on February 15th or February 1st? Where were we on one I, to 10? I think we were ready down to a six or seven. Um, like oh, this really? Is not all, yeah, I think some of the corrections in valuation, enthusiasm, tolerance for high burn rates and things of that sort had already been adjusting or were adjusted uh, for the last six to nine months. Somewhat, I would tie it back if you had to put a, a kind of a pin in timeline right around the WeWork debacle uh, is when I think there's a very clear retrenchment, repricing, reanalysis of like, what's the right criteria for a growth round? Um, I don't think we changed, like for example, Founders Fund, I don't think we changed our criteria at all, but I felt like maybe we were on the 20th percentile in terms of conservatism, on some of these metrics, I felt like everybody moved to agreeing with our metrics and goal and like objectives very quickly, where maybe there'd be a 10% of people who would still fund stuff that we thought were, you know, it was a miserable business from an empirical standpoint. It really did move from 20th percent, 80% would fund stuff that we didn't like to like only 10% of people would fund stuff we didn't like. I guess we, we may look back at we the WeWork IPO is the moment when, when things changed, right? And, and when that was when everyone, we didn't see it all, but that might've been a moment. I think that was when it was clear to people. I do believe it started to change before that, truthfully, at least in my, my view and my, from my vantage point. But I think that was when everybody sort of had like the uh, proverbial partner meeting discussions about like, what are we funding? Why are we funding? Why, what price are we funding? And it was like, it was like a, you know, a crystallizing moment even if some of that stuff was already, you know, already had some momentum behind it. So if we were a six and a seven there, and that's good. I, it's a, I would have, I would have, from a very narrow SaaS perspective, I would have rated it 11, but I, I'm, I don't disagree with you. Sure. Six or seven. Where are we today? Where are we today from your perspective and if different from Founders Fund, if that was a six or a seven, not, not March, not April, but wherever the heck we are today, May, May 20 something. Maybe like a three. You think it's a three? Yeah. I think there's deals being announced. I mean, including I announced four investments over the last month, let's say, but almost all of those had significant momentum, at least maybe a handshake, possibly a term sheet, maybe even signed documents before March 16th. And then, yeah. you know, it takes a while to get through the process of negotiation, real documents, wiring money, getting on filings. Tech yeah, all that stuff lives. <laughs> um, so I think that the reality is very few new deals are getting done with very, very few exceptions. I think there are some growth rounds that are getting done because you can kind of look at the spreadsheets and these are pretty impressive businesses. There's a handful of businesses that just look amazing on paper. And if they look amazing on you know Excel or paper or whatever, Excel spreadsheets or something, 
those deals are possible to do, um, especially with public market comparables being both high and no longer quite as volatile. Um, there, I mean, there's still some volatility. Like if you just even look at today, um, there's some volatility in the market, but it's pretty easy to hit the outlier high growth companies with low bur- moderate burn, fast payback on a CAC basis. Um, everybody wants to invest in that or most, most funds are looking into those. And so those deals can still get done. The early stage stuff, I would probably guesstimate is getting done at 10 to 15 percent normal, like in terms of velocity. And that's probably, a lot different than you'd think looking at the press, right? 10 to 15 percent. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, 10 to 15 percent and I'd probably call it 50 percent the valuation of last year. If you're growing faster than March 15th, how does that impact that calculation? If you're going faster in a way where also the unit economics slash payback is improving, and that's actually true for some companies, like think DoorDash or some telemedicine companies as a, you know, extreme examples, those are pretty fundable for two reasons, or home fitness in some ways, maybe. I'm not sure that the payback on the home fitness thing has changed that dramatically, uh, the CAC payback, but certainly the growth is there. Those companies are very fundable right now because they're basically, it's like a version of the old why now question. So every investor deck, every good investor deck has a, has a why now slide. The post March 16th is just amplifying that question. Why is your company better post you know, COVID? And if you have a great answer to that, like people will, look, will definitely be interested um, in funding you. So it's a, a species of the old canonical why now question. But if you don't have a great why now question, then I think you're getting kind of lost in the uh, you know, quicksand sort of in VCs that are polite, but not really investing. Yeah. And let me, let me just dig into that a little bit. Let's, I think this was the point you were trying to make with fairs that it's still doing incredibly well, just not quite as well as it would have done absent COVID-19, right? A two, yeah. So two fair, X instead fair, of three X, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like literally our plan for the year was to grow board plan for 2020 would be to grow more than three X, which is great. I mean, for a company at a pretty good scale, but we'll, we'll still put up two X um, even with COVID, which by most metrics is a pretty good year, maybe not be good enough for what, you know, the company's ambitions, but it will get back to three X, but two X year to year is actually not that bad in the grand scheme of life. Not that bad. Um, so let me ask that question then for new deals. And, and as you said, you've announced a ton of deals personally and a founder's fund, but most of them were in flight before all this happened. One way or another, yeah. they were in flight, right? For a new deal that is like a fair, not maybe not literally fair, but let's say, let's say in February, you are at 2 million ARR tripling and you love the founder. Okay. It was in a good space. It's growing 3X. Unit economics are plenty good, right? Whatever your bar is, your bar's high, but, but tripling, quadrupling, going 2.5x. And instead of 3x, now it's 2x. Or instead of 3x, now it's 1.8x. And it's not Coachella. So it's not restaurants. Do you just do the deal? Do you just connect the dots and say, I don't, I'm going long. I don't really care if it's eight to 20 months until this recovers. Or, or what's the honest answer for you in Founders Fund? Or do you, do you, is it still tough to make that mental leap that it's just a gap? I think it depends on how much is this, this a temporary blip? Meaning, can you articulate, look, everybody's going to have a weird set of metrics in late March, early April. Like, you know, typically when we're funding like a later stage company, they have this like, you know, super smooth growth curve and everything looks amazing. 
very few people are going to be presenting for the next year or two, like slides that are perfect. Everybody's going to have like, you know, some uh, volatility, at least in March and April. And so if you can show that the volatility, you know, segment of time or time uh, is pretty temporal and that you're back on, you know, sort of a predictable growth rate, et cetera, even if it's a month to three months of that, I think there'll be some serious interest in investing in companies like that. So I think you get basically a pass. I think most companies are going to get a pass between March and maybe May in some of their metrics. Yes. But the, me- the metrics before that pass zone better be pretty damn good. And at some point after that pass zone, they better start looking good again. And if you can do that, I think people will just, you know, kind of close their eyes to this middle zone where typically at a growth round and even a serious C, you can't really get away with that. Like a missed quarter looks terrible typically. Everybody's going to have like a missed quarter or so. Got it. But for what I, I call them, the COVID beneficiaries, the COVID impacted and the COVID, we don't need you anymore. So for the impact that I think you're saying, it's hard. It's just, it's the fact is it's hard, right? Even if intellectually, you know that these industries are coming back, you, you, you have to resume growth in Q3, it sounds like, to get funded. You have, you have to resume your, your sort of normal growth. Yeah, I think you do need to show that if you want more money, that the company has either figured out, well, either the macro world has adjusted, and so you're back on whatever trajectory you're on, or the company has figured out how to tune what it does, whether in small tuning or large pivoting to the new world. And that there's yeah. evidence that whatever tuning you've, um, whatever adjustments you made are working. If not that, then I think there's not a lot of appetite to fund companies, especially if they've already raised a sizable chunk of capital. Uh, you know, so it's, it's much easier, let's say, in a sizable chunk, let's call it 10 million or more. If you're not able to show that the world has been fixed from whatever perspective and vantage point you're in business, or you fixed your company to take advantage of the new world, it's much easier to pass that somebody's already raised a dose of capital and just say, I'd rather take a shot at something new that's built from the ground up in this new world. Yep. Let me ask you a question you probably that I've thought a lot about, but you have much may have much better data and thinking, which is my gut, and I don't have the data to support this, but I have my anecdotal data. I've made 25 investments and I, I talked to a lot of founders. I think 15 to 20% of SaaS companies that we work with are COVID beneficiaries, 15 to 20%. 15 to 20% are in collaboration, sharing, e-learning, e- even just e-commerce, right? That I didn't, I invested in a company called Gorgeous, which is a contact center for SMBs on Shopify. March was rough. April, it grew 70%, 70%. Right? So that was an unexpected one, right? So if 15 to 20% are COVID beneficiaries, can that absorb all of venture capital? Does venture capital even need to bother? Like venture capital is not, no matter how it looks, it's not a huge asset class, is it? Does, do, do, is there even any point for new investments in doing anything but a COVID beneficiary? You could argue, you could certainly argue that because um, if you believe that there's a fundamental shift in the world in any way, like towards e-commerce verticals, towards at-home fitness training, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely, it would make sense to take your money and, you know, only investing COVID beneficiaries. There's a big argument, you know, we debate internally all the time, you can debate publicly, how much does human behavior sort of snap back into traditional norms? Or is there sort of a quote, unquote, new normal? Yeah, what's the answer? (laughs) Well, I I actually think it varies by vertical. I actually think that 
there are some things that have had a permanent change and people are not going to go back. So for example, let's talk about telemedicine just because it's easy to, to grok. Telemedicine had been growing nicely for the last five to seven years. Um, and there's you know a couple of public companies, several private companies, but it's had a step function. And when I mean step function, uh, I'll give you some real numbers. Stanford Hospital went from roughly 1,700 telemedicine consults a day to 74,000 a day. Cleveland Clinic has roughly the same uh, scale there. So massive step function. And what, what's happened is people realize, actually, you know what? Telemedicine is actually better. Like, I, I don't want to go to a doctor's office where everybody else there has germs or something. And I have to sit in this waiting room and the doctor's never on time. Whereas most things, like call 50 to 70% of things that go wrong with me, the doctor can easily diagnose or triage by a telephone call from my home when I haven't even had to commute anywhere, let alone to get exposed to other people's germs. And by the way, they're probably on time for the telemedicine call. And so <laughs> that I don't think flips back at all. Also, the companies, at least the private companies, get better marginal economics. So I, I think we're on a telemedicine wave. The regulators also stepped in and made things easier, um, relaxed some uh, cross-state border restrictions on practicing medicine. Unfortunately, I suspect they'll go back to normal and sort of insist that California doctors can only treat people that are in California, which makes no sense. But they had suspended that, which also allowed for this growth. But maybe, maybe even the regulators will cave now. I'm sure. I'm sure there's no, uh, maybe not no, but almost trivial, negligible examples of California doctors really handicap, or, you know, really screwing up the, pra the practice of medicine for Virginia residents. So all of that is just like a permanent change. And then you can even see, well, maybe if that's true, maybe there's application of that concept to other other versions or species of medical care where telemedicine or quasi-telemedicine takes off as well. There's some things that I don't think are complete substitutes and really are unfortunate, you know, inferior substitutes. You can argue some of the, some of the, like, even if you go into home fitness, break this down. I think like Peloton's a pretty good substitute for SoulCycle uh, for many people, maybe superior, cost-effective, more convenient, more adaptable to your schedule, et cetera. I'm not sure the at-home equivalent of weight training is, you know, for going to a gym. Most people are not going to have the same equipment, uh, the space, you know, et cetera. We funded a company that provides like a really good at-home experience called Tempo for strength training. But to some extent, you know, there's, there's limits on what you can do in a normal person's house in America or apartment. And so I think that is a function of what's the healthcare situation in the United States? What's the risk tolerance of people for getting exposed to germs? But are people going to permanently stay away from gyms if the healthcare crisis alleviates? I doubt it. Georgia doesn't suggest it. No, that's true. And, you know, truthfully, the facts in Georgia don't suggest that it's a, as big a problem as people thought. But, you know, I personally wouldn't want to be in a gym right now with a lot of other people. It's just hard to keep everything perfectly sanitized all day long, even if you put, uh, you know, density caps on. But I would imagine, like, you know, you'll see gyms like even the equinoxes of the world where you have to schedule your workout. Yeah, it's complicated. All right, Keith, this was incredible. I, I, I wish we could dig even more, but we've gone our full length of time. So thanks for anything. Anything else last minute you, you want to share? I think we've hit some amazing stuff. That's great. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. Stay safe and we'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks everybody great. for joining. All right.
Light Matter is a digital product studio that helps some of the world's fastest growing startups and enterprise companies design and develop software applications. They build killer web and mobile apps, APIs, and help with some of the toughest legacy transformations. Check them out at lightmatter.com forward slash saster.